Hey, it's Alan, and I just wanted to let you know that you can now listen to the ongoing history of new music early and ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. It's one thing to be young, loud, and snotty. Heck, it's almost expected, required. But it's another thing to be old, loud, and snotty. See, it's okay to be full of angst and bitterness when you're just starting out and you don't have any money. Because you have nothing to lose, you almost have to be really goofy and spend a lot of time acting like a jerk. But if you're lucky and your CDs and concert tickets start selling by the boatload, you won't be poor for long. That means you'll wake up one day, find yourself in your 30s with six or seven figures in the bank, and realize that there's really nothing to be angry or bitter about anymore. And when you try to be goofy or act like a jerk like you used to, it just doesn't seem to, you know, work. So in other words, you fail to evolve as you age. Your act gets old. You start to look and sound phony. And as the British say, things go all terribly pear-shaped. This has been the downfall of many a musician. It's like they all have this best-before date stamped on their foreheads. But there are exceptions and surprises. U2 is probably the best example. Elvis Costello is another good one. R.E.M. have had their struggles of late, but they're still around. But if you could rewind to the late 1980s and look in on a rehearsal in some dirty squat in Oakland, California, chances are you would never ever have bet on this group lasting more than 18 months, not in a million years. I mean, seriously, what could you possibly expect from a high school dropout, the son of a heroin addict, and a 12-year-old wannabe rock star? I mean, really? But two decades and tens of millions of albums and a bunch of Grammys and Junos later, they're doing just fine. Welcome to the world of Green Day. This is the Ongoing History of New Music Podcast with Alan Cross. We were, we were called Blood Rage, and uh, we, used to play the, we used to play the On Broadway, but I wasn't in the band then. I was in, I, I was in a band called Isocracy. And then, and then, and then, we, were, then, then, then we were called Sweet Children. Hold on, there's a quarter. So we were called Sweet Children, and then uh, we, uh, I mean, we, <laughs> and then we turned into uh, Green Day. We were sick of being confused with Sweet Day and Jesus, and uh, so we changed the name to Green Day because we had a song called Green Day. Actually, I think the reason we, the true reason we changed the name was I wrote Green Day on the back of my jacket because I thought that was a cool name for a song, but then I thought, cool, if it's on the back of my jacket, a better name for a band. Green Day, live in Toronto in September 2004. That's from one of the shows they did to promote the release of their brilliant American Idiot album, a record that proves that old punks don't necessarily have to fade away. Welcome again, I'm Alan Cross, and this is some deep background on a group that is now officially the biggest-selling punk rock band of all time. Along with Nirvana and Pearl Jam, Green Day has become one of the most popular and most influential of all the alternative bands that came in the wake of Nirvana. 
Their sound isn't particularly innovative. They follow that tried-and-true three-chord punk rock formula that's been around since the late 60s. But through most of their career, they found a way to keep it sounding fresh. Now, if you were to ask Green Day to describe themselves, here's what you'd get. Yeah, we, a- we try to follow in the footsteps of Journey. You know? Yeah, you know, Journey, you know, Jefferson Airplane. I don't know. And they're from New York. A bunch of kids from suburbs of, of like, San Francisco and Berkeley, you know. And uh, We like the Ramones. That's what we're carrying on. The, we pretty much bands. know who we don't want to sound like. You know, it's more. It goes way more than who we would like to sound like. It's more who we don't want to sound like. And I know there's a lot more bands that I hate than I really like. So. So Green Day, live at the 25th anniversary of Woodstock in Socrates, New York, back in August of 1994. That set was famous for descending into a mud fight with a crowd, and for bass player Mike Durnt losing a couple of teeth when he ran into a security guard on stage and bounced his face off a speaker cabinet. Ow. Now, most people are familiar with the recent history of Green Day, or at the very least, they know about the big albums from the last dozen years. But there's much, much more to the history of this band than American Idiot and Dookie, and hopefully we can fill in a few blanks. Green Day is made up of three very interesting individuals, all of whom were born in 1972. Billy Joe lived in Rodeo, California, which is a suburb of Berkeley, which is part of Oakland. Rodeo is actually a pretty depressing sort of place. The most obvious landmark is a foul-smelling oil refinery. Billy Joe, which is the way we should address him, that's his real first name. He should be addressed as Billy Joe all the time. He was something of a musical prodigy as a kid. His father was a jazz drummer who taught his kid how to sing show tunes. By the time Billy Joe was five, he started singing at old age homes and children's hospitals. He took up the piano at eight. He would have preferred the guitar, but his dad said his hands were too small. Billy Joe's father died of cancer when he was ten. He was just one of five kids being raised by a mother who could only find work as a waitress at a place called Rod's Hickory Pit. A stepfather came into the picture two years later, but all the kids hated him. It's pretty rough. But as tough as it was for Billy Joe, it was even worse for his friend Mike. He was born Michael Pritchard. Mum was a heroin addict. The courts took him away and placed him in an adoptive home with a white man and a Native American woman. When he was seven, they divorced. And Mike lived with his stepfather for a while, then ended up back with his birth mother for a bit. That's when he smoked his first joint. He was seven. Billy Joe and Mike met in the cafeteria at school in about 1983. Over the next year, they formed a couple of bands that played songs like Van Halen's Ain't Talkin' About Love and Ozzy's Crazy Train. The first original song Billy Joe remembers writing was something called Why Do You Want Him? That would have been about 1984. This would also be the year that Billy Joe bought his first guitar, a Fender Stratocaster. He still has that guitar and he still uses it on stage. Things really began to change in 1987. Mike finally left home at age 15, just couldn't take it anymore, so he lived in a truck for a while before he rented a room at Billy Joe's place. Billy Joe earned extra money by selling joints at school for two bucks apiece, which is why everybody called him Two Dollar Bill. Their first real band was called Sweet Children. It was Billy Joe on guitar, Mike on bass, and a guy named John Cliffmeyer on drums, but he wanted everyone to call him El Sobrante because that's where he came from, a town called El Sobrante. The first Sweet Children gig was at Mum's Restaurant, Rod's Hickory Pit. About 30 people showed up. 
And yes, Sweet Children did record something. They issued an EP on a label called Skeen Records in 1988. If you can find an original copy of that, you've got yourself a real collector's item. Pre-Green Day, Sweet Children, 1988. Over the next couple of years, Billy Joe and Mike played in separate bands. Mike sang for a group called Crummy Musicians, while Billy Joe was a member of Corrupted Morals. And there was a very brief moment when he was part of Rancid. Yes, that Rancid, but that was for an extremely short period of time, a blip hardly worth mentioning. In 1989, Billy Joe and Mike Durnt reformed Sweet Children under the name Green Day. I've already heard the story about the name. It's a private term for a day spent smoking up. There was also another name change at around the same time. Drummer John Cliffmeyer gave up calling himself El Sobrante. This explains why some people think that Green Day changed drummers around the time they changed names. So the three of them, all 17 at the time, made their first record. It was a 7-inch EP on a local indie label called Lookout. They called it 1,000 Hours. Here's a sample. Green Day with 1,000 Hours, title track for their 1989 EP. That was followed by another four-song 7-inch in 1990. This EP was called Slappy. Early, early Green Day, 1990. On February 16th, 1990, just one day before his 18th birthday, Billy Joe dropped out of high school to get into music full-time. He supported himself by selling newspaper subscriptions outside a local grocery store. Mike hung in there until June, and the day after he graduated, Green Day set out on their first-ever tour. They also recorded a vinyl-only album for Lookout Records called 39 Smooth. One of the songs in this album was called Surprise, Green Day. That first Green Day tour was pretty short, but was enough for John the drummer. He had plans to go to college, so he announced that he was quitting. In retrospect, this probably wasn't a great career move, but, you know, back then, who knew? Then again, Green Day might not have done as well as they had had it not been for this lineup change. See, John's replacement was Frank Edwin Wright III, who just happened to be the guy giving John his drum lessons. He was a regular at a punk club called 924 Gilman Street, which catered to Oakland's teen punk scene. From the time he was about 12, Frank had been in a band with a dude named Lawrence Livermore, the founder of Lookout Records. So there's the connection. Lawrence is also notable for being the guy who renamed Frank Edwin Wright III, Trey Cool. Trey joined Green Day just in time to record another indie album for Lookout called Kerplunk, and it contained an early version of this song. And you probably know it by heart by now. Oh! 
The original version of Welcome to Paradise from Green Day. The album is entitled Kerplunk, released January 17, 1992. And if you look at the CD booklet, there's a story about a girl murdering her parents so she could see Green Day. But don't worry, it's, it's not true. By the way, Kerplunk was originally called Liquid Dookie. See how all this sort of ties together? After that record came out, Green Day started touring full-time. Trey Cool's father was, was really good about it because he was this Vietnam vet who owned a small trucking company, and he overhauled an old library bookmobile that he had bought from the Phoenix school system. That bus became Green Day's first tour bus. Mr. Wright even acted as the official driver for Green Day's first three tours. Between road trips, they'd set up and practice in the living room at Trey's house. You see what I mean about how things work out? Would Green Day have had this kind of support had John Clefmeyer stayed with the group? It's one of those what-if questions. Anyway, mid-1992. Green Day's rep was big enough for them to start attracting the attention of a couple of major labels. 39 Smooth and Kerplunk had sold about 70,000 copies, which was pretty respectable for a small indie punk band. Under the terms of their deal with Lookout Records, Green Day was, you know, actually doing pretty well. By getting a nice 60% of the gross profits, Green Day had earned over $150,000 from those records. Nice move. Very smart. In early 1993, a guy named Elliot Kahn started playing a Green Day tape for a variety of label people. Elliot was this lawyer, but he was also a musician. Anyone remember the 50s revival group Sha Na Na? Yeah, Elliot used to be part of that. That was his singing gig. With alternative music and punk getting really, really hot, and you got to remember this is when Nirvana and Pearl Jam and the Smashing Pumpkins were blowing up everywhere, a lot of labels seemed to be interested in California punk, which seemed to be the next big thing. But then a Warner Brothers rep named Rob Cavallo started some hard lobbying. He also had a pretty good track record. He had helped sign the Goo Goo Dolls, and his father had managed such groups as the Love and Spoonful and Earth, Wind and Fire. Rob was so convinced that Green Day was the real deal that he signed them without ever seeing them play live. He gave the band $300,000 and told them to start working on a new album. Green Day said that was, that was fine, as long as they got to record in a studio within biking distance of their homes. And check out this winning move that sealed the deal. He took his guitar over to Trey Cool's place to meet the band where they jammed on some Beatles tunes, smoked a few joints, and everybody went out for Indian food. That was it. We want to work with this guy. But this whole thing with the major label created a bit of a crisis with the old fans at the Gilman Street Punk Club. A number of old school Green Day fans picketed some shows because they were angry that one of their own would dare sign a major label record deal. On February 1st, 1994, Green Day released a record called Dookie. They knew it was pretty good, but no one expected it to stay on the charts for two years and sell more than 10 million copies. Green Day from Dookie, the album where most of the world jumped on the Green Day bandwagon. It's also the record that paved the way for a ton of pop-punk bands. Some 41, Blink-182, Good Charlotte, Simple Plan, list goes on and on. There are some people who actually call Dookie the punk rock version of The Joshua Tree. Then there are some people who refer to the CD as Fluky, as in, what a fluke that was. Guess it all depends on which side you're on, right? From this point, we're pretty familiar with the songs and the albums, but there's other stuff that we can talk about beyond the music. 
That's how we'll continue with our deep background on Green Day next. Hi, this is Alan Cross. Welcome to the Ongoing History of New Music podcast, our weekly exploration of the stories and characters that made modern music what it is today. We want to make this podcast one of your favorites. So if you love the show, do me a favor, tell a friend about it or rate it on iTunes if that's your thing. We'd really love it if you do that. Or you can just drop me an email with your thoughts to alan at alancross.ca. Maybe you want more information on something you hear, or maybe you have an idea for a topic for a future episode. Whatever. I guarantee your response. alan at alancross.ca. Whether you're listening one at a time or binging on a bunch of podcasts all at once, we're glad to have you here. All right, let's talk music, shall we? Most people are familiar with Green Day's track record since the Dookie record in 1993. It was followed by the Insomniac CD in 1995 and Nimrod in 1997. Then came Warning in 2000 and, of course, American Idiot in 2004. There were a lot of singles and tours during that time, but remember back at the beginning of the show how we talked about how tough it is for young, loud, and snotty bands to age? Let me give you a bit about Green Day's issues. When Dookie made them superstars, Green Day suddenly found themselves completely alienated from their de facto families and support systems, which were the kids and fans that hung around 924 Gilman Street. This could explain why, by the time everyone in Green Day was 25, they were all married with actual families. But it's been tough. Mike Durant hasn't been lucky. His wife left him the day Green Day finished recording American Idiot. He has a young daughter. And he's had some health challenges, too. Publicly, the word is that he's suffering from panic attacks. The truth is that he had been having minor heart problems, which not only caused shortness of breath, but also searing chest pain. It's okay. He's got it under control, but it's something that he's got to watch. As for Trey Cool, he's had it tough, too. He's been divorced twice and has one child with each ex-wife. There's also a failed romance with Tori Castellano, the drummer for a band called The Donnas. Only Billy Joe's marriage to his wife, Adrian, has survived. She's originally from Minnesota and has a degree in sociology. She also works for a company that manufactures merchandise for punk bands, stuff like t-shirts and posters. Adrian often tours with Green Day, and Grandma, Billy Joe's mom, the ex-waitress from Rod's Hickory Pit, looks after the kids. There's Joey, he's the oldest, and Jacob Danger. Yeah, <laughs> that's, that's the kid's name. Jacob Danger Armstrong. Quick true story. When he was a baby, Joey, the oldest, cried so much that he kept Dad and Mom up all night. This is why Green Day's 95 album is called Insomniac. Green Day from Insomniac, the follow-up to Dookie. After that record came Nimrod and Warning. All three records sold um, okay, but in the shadow of Dookie, the numbers were, you know, just that, okay. Sure, there were some big singles like Time of Your Life, which has become some kind of punk rock classic, but slowly people began to wonder if Green Day was was relevant anymore. Maybe they were just, you know, one of those alt-rock bands from the early 90s who were just going to fade away, you know, like the rest of them. And it almost happened. What saved Green Day was a co-headlining tour with Blink-182 in 2001. What that road trip did was cement Green Day as some kind of punk rock elder statesman. The young kids who came to see Blink were blown away by this old band called Green Day. And this is exactly what the record company was hoping for. And it's also why they released a Green Day Greatest Hits album at around the same time. It gave the band just enough momentum and bought them just enough time 
to go into the studio to record what needed to be an absolutely killer album. So they tried. Most of 2002 was spent working on new material. They had about 20 songs done, and then something weird happened. The master tapes vanished. They went home one day, and when they came back to work the next day, everything was gone. No one knows how or where or who, and if they do, they're not talking. This will forever be the lost Green Day album. Now, you can imagine how bummed out everyone was. Green Day knew that they needed to come up with something huge if they were going to save their career. But then some bastard screws that up by stealing their music. Meanwhile, Mike Dern was having all kinds of trouble with his wife, and you know, there was an eight-year-old daughter named Estelle Desiree involved, and oh, it was just a mess. So, so what were they going to do? Well, start from scratch. And it was a creative exercise, you know, just to try and get everybody pumped up again. Each member was assigned some homework. Come up with several songs, each about 30 seconds long. Strangely enough, when everyone played the songs for everyone else, the songs somehow lent themselves to being strung together. So they did. And the result was a nine-minute, five-part punk song called Homecoming. Okay, that was fun. Seemed to work. So they tried it again. More 30-second songs strung together. That resulted in something called Jesus of Suburbia, which also clocked in at around nine minutes. Suddenly, they were on to something. And before anyone realized what was going on, Green Day had constructed a 13-track punk rock opera. Punk rock opera? you got to be kidding. Who's going to buy that kind of crap? Well, a lot of people, apparently. Several million in very short order, too. Day with Jesus of Suburbia from their 2004 comeback album, I think we can call it that, called American Idiot. Now there is a storyline, a libretto to the album. It's a little hard to follow, but if you work hard, you can sort of make sense of it, maybe. It has to do with some nihilistic character named St. Jimmy who ends up having some kind of crisis of faith when he finds something or someone worth caring about. But then when he dies, the album continues because the narrator, who doesn't have a name, apparently needs to bring us to a bigger theme that involves trying and failing and have to work things out for ourselves. Or, or something like that. Of course, you also have to weave in themes of consumerism and paranoia and alienation and war and neurosis and introspection and a bunch of other things. If they ever try to make a movie out of this album, and believe me, their manager told me it's a possibility, they're going to have to find one heck of a screenwriter to make sense of the whole thing. Some final facts on Green Day before we go. First of all, if you've heard some bad stuff about Billy Joe's vocal cords and how he shredded them to pieces, that story is actually true. They were very badly ulcerated. So no more coffee and alcohol and Mexican food and Italian food for Billy. The good news is that he is okay now. If you ever find yourself on Gilman Street in Oakland, it's not that far from San Francisco, you look for a donut shop as you head down Gilman. It's almost right across the street. That's the punk club where it all began for Green Day. And because all three members still live in the area, you might even run into one of the guys getting a, you know, a bear claw or something. And if you're ever at the Comedy Store on Sunset Boulevard in Los Angeles and one of the guys during open mic night looks familiar, it might just be Mike Durnt. He's got this thing for stand-up comedy. 
He's actually tried out material in front of an audience. I'd love to see that. Technical production for the show is The Domain of Rob Johnston. I'm Alan Cross. See you next time. You've been listening to the Ongoing History of New Music podcast with Alan Cross. Subscribe to the podcast through iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, Spotify, and everywhere you find your favorite podcasts. 